From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. There is an evangelical industrial complex, and it exists not for the nurturing of spiritual journeys, not for the betterment of society by way of introducing Jesus to an unbelieving world. It exists to win elections. It exists to win the culture wars. That's Tim Alberta. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Alberta's sweeping book is a look at how the reactionary attitudes and coarseness of the modern MAGA-tinged Republican Party has transformed evangelical Christianity. It's also an examination of Alberta's own faith. He is the son of an evangelical pastor. We talk about his father's unexpected religious and political transformation, why evangelicals stand by former President Trump, and the nature of religious faith. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Now let's get to your questions. So as we begin 2024, as you well know, there are lots of trials on deck, lots of Supreme Court cases that are about to be decided. And over the course of time, I get really great basic questions, fundamental questions, definitional questions from you folks. And I thought as we head into this new year of of legal wrangling, criminal trials and the like, I'd answer some of these more fundamental questions about definitions and concepts in the law that many lay people might not be fully familiar with, even though you hear these terms all the time. This question comes in an email from Val, who asks, who decides the sentencing guidelines and what factors are considered? Are guidelines a suggestion or do judges need to strictly follow them? Well, that's a great question. And it goes to a lot of sort of curiosity about and confusion over how people get punished, what the proper length of sentences are, how judges make those decisions. So I'm going to speak only for the federal system because that's the system with which I'm most comfortable and most familiar, obviously, from my time as U.S. attorney and as an assistant U.S. attorney. So first of all, let's take a step back and talk about why there seems to be understandable confusion about how sentences are imposed. Part of that is because there are actually two sources of authority about what punishments should be imposed under the law. The first source 
is the statute itself that contains the nature of the violation. So if there's a homicide statute or a drug statute or a robbery statute or a conspiracy statute, those statutes that are enacted by lawmakers prescribe a particular maximum sentence for every crime. So basic conspiracy has a maximum sentence of five years. Certain other kinds of frauds have a maximum sentence of 20 years. And obviously in the federal system, there are penalties up to and including life imprisonment and even the death penalty. So that's true for every statute. For some statutes, there's not only a maximum legal sentence imposable, but also a mandatory minimum sentence. So certain kinds of drug crimes or crimes that occur with firearms have mandatory minimum sentences. Otherwise, if there's no mandatory minimum sentence, a statute provides that the, the sentence can be from zero to whatever the statutory maximum is. So that's from statutes. Now, there's something called the sentencing guidelines or the federal sentencing guidelines. Those came into being after Congress enacted the Sentencing Reform Act in 1984. And that act did a lot of different things, but with respect to sentences, it aimed to take away what some people thought was an unnecessary discrepancy between sentences in different parts of the country, depending on who the judge was. So to try to introduce some uniformity and some standards and some guidance for judges, the Sentencing Commission was created, the U.S. Sentencing Commission. And so the U.S. Sentencing Commission is the body provided for by Congress that determines what the sentencing guidelines are. So what are the sentencing guidelines? Well, they're what they sound like. They're basically a set of principles and guidelines that inform judges as to what proper sentences should be, or what the proper range of sentences should be in different circumstances. And basically, the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines take two things into account. First, the seriousness of the offense. And second, the criminal history of the person who is being sentenced. So with respect to the first, the seriousness of the offense, the Sentencing Guidelines provide for every kind of offense imaginable, whether it's fraud or violence or some other such thing, a base offense level based on what the Sentencing Commission in its wisdom has determined with respect to the seriousness of the offense. Then once a base offense level is determined, there are lots of other considerations that judges are supposed to take into account in adjusting that base offense level. So for example, some of those considerations are, what was the nature of the role of the defendant in the particular crime, if it was a conspiracy? Were there vulnerable victims who were targeted and victimized? The amount of the loss or the profit in a fraud case can affect the offense level as well. And in some instances, if there was a use of a firearm, and the considerations are many. So to calculate the proper range of a potential sentence, you first determine what the seriousness of the offense is. And that's a numerical value, which some people might find odd when you're talking about sentencing a human being. And then you take into account the criminal history of the person. So if two people have committed the same offense under the federal system, and one person has never been convicted of a crime before, and another person has been convicted three times of felonies, they will receive different sentencing guidelines ranges based on the calculations in the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines as written. So the Sentencing Guidelines were enacted for the purpose of trying to give some uniformity to sentences so it shouldn't make a difference if you're arrested on a drug crime in the Bronx or you're arrested for a drug crime in the state of Washington. That said, lots of people have been critics of the Sentencing Guidelines for a lot of different reasons, including that it hasn't actually fully eliminated some of those discrepancies. There's also been criticism that the Sentencing Guidelines took away discretion from judges who are supposed to be deciding cases and controversies based on the individual facts and based on the individual who is being sentenced. So your last question is a good one. Are guidelines a suggestion or do judges need to strictly follow them? Well, when they were enacted, they were basically mandatory. Or maybe a better term would be they were considered to be presumptive. You could depart from what the ranges were if you were a judge, but it had to be justified in a particular way. So effectively, the sentencing guidelines, when they were enacted after 1984 until 2005, were not suggestions. They needed to be fairly strictly followed. 
In 2005, the Supreme Court of the United States decided a case called the United States versus Booker. And that case did a number of things, but relevant to your question, the most important thing that the Booker case did was it took out the requirement that the sentencing guidelines had to be mandatorily followed. And they were guides, but judges could deviate from them in a way that they couldn't before. So that's the sentencing regime we have. I've written about it extensively in my book, Doing Justice. I presume we will have lots and lots of questions about an appropriate sentence for the people who are under indictment, including Donald Trump, if he gets convicted. And hopefully that provides something of a clarification and a foundation to understand how in the federal system, sentences are imposed. This question comes in an email from Warren, who asks, what's the difference between a misdemeanor and a felony? Does it have anything to do with state versus federal crimes? So to answer the second part of your question, that's not what it has to do with. There are felonies and misdemeanors both in the federal system and felonies and misdemeanors in all the states of the union as well. Basically, the terms misdemeanor and felony are categories of criminal violations, with misdemeanors being less serious and felonies being more serious. Now, the interesting thing is, the way we determine whether something is serious or not serious is not by necessarily judges using their common sense about the nature of the crime, the nature of the offense, the facts relating to the offense. Instead, judges effectively defer to lawmakers' consideration and promulgation of rules that make a determination about how serious the offense is based on one factor, what the maximum penalty for that offense can be. So actually, the distinction between a misdemeanor and a felony for those purposes is quite simple. A misdemeanor is something that is punishable by a maximum of one year in prison, and a felony is something that is punishable by more than one year in prison. But generally speaking, the nature of misdemeanors are less serious crimes and felonies. Some examples of a misdemeanor offense, vandalism, trespassing, petty theft, those sorts of things. And you might imagine the many other examples of felonies, which are more plentiful in both the state and federal system, are things like robbery, burglary, homicide, narcotics distribution, certain kinds of fraud offenses. But the difference, as I said, is with respect to what the maximum punishment can be. Now, to be clear, you can commit a misdemeanor and get sentenced to 11 months in prison, and you can commit a felony and get less than 10 months in prison. Now, the distinction between a misdemeanor and a felony can sometimes play out in more interesting ways in actual practice on the ground. So, for example, if you're in a state that has a larceny statute that says larceny in the amount of $1,000 or more is a felony, but larceny to the tune of under $1,000 is a misdemeanor, you might find yourself charged in certain jurisdictions with a felony, and then through the process of plea negotiations and plea bargaining, sometimes prosecutors will decide in their discretion, for various reasons, to plead it out to a misdemeanor, even though it began as a felony. That happens all over the place. The point of that is just to say that the law demarcates things very precisely and very rigorously, like this idea of a misdemeanor versus a felony, and the nature of those two things, and the sentences that can be imposed, whether it's one or the other. In real life and in real practice, in the give and take of the defense and the prosecution, there's a bit more fluidity to all of that. This question comes in an email from Meredith, who asks, can you help me understand the difference between an indictment and an information? Well, that's a great question. And I think it's confusing to a lot of people because sometimes you will hear that someone has been charged pursuant to an indictment. That's the most normal and traditional and usual thing you will hear about in a criminal case. But every once in a while, you'll hear in the federal system that someone has been charged by way of an information, which is a confusing word because of the, the other common meanings that the word information has. To take a step back and be as basic as possible, let's talk about why there's an indictment process in the first place. Well, that comes from our actual Constitution, the Fifth Amendment, to be precise. The Fifth Amendment to the Constitution 
provides that prosecutions for a capital or otherwise infamous crime have to be instituted by a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. So what's an otherwise infamous crime? Well, the courts have held consistently for a long time now that basically a felony is an otherwise infamous crime. Going back to what I said in answer to an earlier question, the courts have held that if a violation of a criminal statute can carry with it a sentence of imprisonment in a penitentiary of more than a year, then the Fifth Amendment right to an indictment is triggered. And you'll recall that a grand jury in the federal system consists of 23 ordinary people from the community who meet and decide on whether or not they find that the government has proven by the standard of probable cause that a particular person has committed a particular crime. There are circumstances in which prosecutors in the federal system can bypass the indictment requirement. And there are basically two categories of such exceptions. One is, and you might have guessed this based on an answer to a prior question that I gave, if something doesn't rise to the level of being an infamous crime, in other words, is something punishable by less than one year in a federal penitentiary, then that doesn't trigger the Fifth Amendment right to indictment. And the government can proceed by what's called an information, which is basically a document that looks just like an indictment, except that the charging party is not the grand jury, the charging party is actually the U.S. attorney for whatever district is relevant. So effectively, misdemeanors can be charged without going to the grand jury. Now, of course, there may be reasons to proceed with a grand jury, even with respect to a misdemeanor. Maybe you want to use the investigative tools the grand jury has. Maybe you want the imprimatur in your particular case of having a grand jury of disinterested people from the community to have made the determination that the probable cause standard has been met. So that's one category, if it doesn't rise to the level of what the Constitution calls an infamous crime. The other is if the defendant voluntarily agrees to waive the right to indictment and it proceeds by information. And that happens all the time. And as you may realize, it makes perfect sense that a person, if the waiver is knowing and voluntary, is permitted to waive this important constitutional fundamental right of indictment. In the same way that a person can waive his or her right to a trial by pleading guilty or waive his or her right against self-incrimination, also provided for in the Fifth Amendment by agreeing to speak after being Mirandized, this right to indictment can also be waived. Now, what's the circumstance in which it tends to be waived? Usually, it's in a case where the person is intending to plead guilty. So, for example, someone has been charged with 10 counts of fraud of a particular nature, and at some point, the government decides to enter into plea negotiations with the defense lawyer, and they decide, based on a variety of circumstances and what they believe to be in the interest of justice, that maybe the person will plead guilty to five of those counts and then some other count pursuant to some other statute that wasn't in the original indictment. Rather than force the government in this cooperative posture to go back to the grand jury and represent a new indictment or a superseding indictment, as you might otherwise, the defense might agree to relieve the government of its burden and proceed by information. So the government just drafts a new document, which is fundamentally a proxy for an indictment with the five counts that were agreed upon and then you six count and you take that to the judge. The judge is required to make a determination that the waiver of the right to indictment is knowing and voluntary and was done in consultation with the attorney. So as I mentioned, proceeding by information is most common when there's a negotiated plea. And the type of negotiated plea scenario in which an information is most likely going to be found is when you have a cooperation agreement. So in my experience at the Southern District of New York, when you're working with someone who's trying to be a cooperator, someone who's flipping to the side of the government, you negotiate all manner of things that the person is going to plead guilty to, including, as I mentioned before in the podcast, crimes that were not initially charged or crimes that possibly the government wasn't able to prove and wouldn't be able to prove, but for the cooperating witness, choosing to tell the government those things. So the person pleads guilty to lots and lots of things and then gets the benefit of a cooperation letter at the end of that person's testimony. Anyway, don't get confused if that sounds too much in the weeds. Basically, in response to your question, Meredith, 
An indictment is something that's the fundamental, traditional way of going about bringing charges in the federal system. And if you hear a reporter or a news report talking about an information, that's most likely in a situation where the parties have agreed to waive the right to indictment. It's the same basic document. It's an operative document that provides the basis most usually for a guilty plea, but can also be the basis for a trial. I'll be right back with my conversation with Tim Alberta. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. Tim Alberta has spent the last few years embedded with evangelical groups during a time of intense tumult. He joins us to share his insights on the powerful movement. Tim Alberta, welcome to the show. Preet, it is a pleasure to be with you. Uh, longtime listener, first-time caller. Thanks for having oh, me. Oh, I love that. I love when people say that. <laughs> so congratulations on your book, which we're going to talk a bit about and the themes in it. It's called The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Now, first, I want to say, because this is an audio format, people can't see the cover of your book, that it is the kingdom, comma, the power, comma, and the glory. You have used the Oxford comma in your title, <laughs> which I very much appreciate because I'm a lover of the Oxford comma, sometimes known as the series comma. What is the relationship between the Oxford comma and Christ? You know, I have received many, many questions on this book tour, and that is a new one. And 
Uh, I, well, you've I done might... so many. I gotta, I gotta mix it up a little bit for you. <laughs> I might. I was gonna say, listen, I can usually see him coming from a mile away. That this one is is new, and I like it. <laughs> I, I, it is. Uh, you Spend know, some time on the comma for for us, if you will. If if we if we want to get into the if we want to jump right into um, you know spiritual warfare, uh, I, I would personally assign the ampersand as uh, as symbolic of of satanic forces <laughs> and the. And the and the Oxford comma as uh, as God's design for us. No, I mean that's all that that's, is holy. Uh, all that is all that is good and holy. Of course, I'm being heretical, and I apologize to any fundamentalists out there listening. But um, but yeah, I'm a big Oxford comma guy. Was that a debate with the copy editor or not? You know, actually, it was at one point. Uh, although I think it was even less the copy editor, more the designer, the the jacket designer. I think they wanted uh, it, like a really like either an ampersand or a very small an ampersand. Yeah, which I think would have been kind of funky looking. Yeah, so I, I've written one book, and I have the Oxford comma on the cover. So I'm a, I'm a brother in arms, uh, so to speak. What, what's the what's the style at the Atlantic? No Oxford comma, right? Ooh, I should know this. No, I think there is no. I think our I think our style is the Oxford comma. It is. I'm pretty sure. Oh boy, well, I'm gonna get in you trouble. Know, I don't work no, there. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't work there, yeah, Tim. Exactly. I'm, 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 I'm trying have, to uh, throw you. I'm trying to throw you stuff that's right in your wheelhouse. <laughs> I know. And look at me just fumbling. You know, Janice, our copy editor, our copy chief at the Atlantic, who's wonderful. I hope she does not hear this because I'm never. Uh, I'm going to get an earful. But I'm pretty sure that we do use an Oxford comma. Matter of fact, I'm about ninety five percent sure that we do use the Oxford. Well, we have comma. a team of people who are going to check while we're speaking and they will text oh, me brother. and let me know oh, how you brother. performed and how um, observant you are as a journalist at your own periodical. Uh, um, so so let's switch to get serious for a moment. Important book, important topics, but to set the stage, and you do this at the beginning of your book also, we can't fully understand your thinking about evangelicals and the movement and how it shifted over time without understanding your father. So your father, Richard Alberta, uh, as you describe, was a uh, self-reported atheist, a financier in New York, and then something happened in about 1977. Uh, what transformation did your father go through? Yeah, it's it's pretty dramatic, and uh, it's one of those stories that I think some people will probably roll their eyes at, and some people will identify with, and then probably lots of people in the middle will kind of not know how to process it. Um, so my dad was was killing it. He and my mom were socialites. They were they had a you know big house in New York, and dad drove a Cadillac, and mom worked for ABC Radio in Manhattan, and dad was banking and making lots of money, and they were they had it all except my dad felt miserable and totally empty inside. And didn't know how to explain that. And neither did anybody else. His friends and family all kind of looked at him sideways. And he had considered himself to be, for some uh, years at that point, an atheist. He, he read Bertrand Russell and others and, and felt quite secure in that identity as an atheist. And yet, because of this emptiness, he went searching and reading and trying to find the thing that was missing. And that led him to stumble into a church in the Hudson Valley one day where he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. And right then and there, that Sunday, he went down to the altar and prayed to receive Jesus and he took communion. And it just completely changed his life. Uh, it, it not just, not only did it change who he was in terms of his lifestyle and his habits, suddenly he's not, he's not going out, he's not drinking, he's not smoking, he's not carrying on and, and, uh, 
and he's getting up at like four in the morning to read his Bible every day. And he's sitting silently in prayer for hours on end. And everybody thinks he's sort of lost his mind. And then it takes an even more dramatic turn because he feels that God is telling him, calling him to enter the ministry and give up his career and uh, go live in poverty, basically. And uh, and now everybody really thinks that, you know, they, like they need to stage an intervention, like his family and friends, my mother, they, they everybody thinks he's lost it. And, may, you know, if you're listening to this, you know, you're thinking, yeah, maybe he did, right? I, I happen to believe that uh, that he truly did hear that calling from the Lord and that it, it, it changed his life. And and the reason I'm so convinced of it, Preet, is because my dad describes this moment where he goes to this church in the Hudson Valley where he had previously prayed to receive Jesus, and he meets with the pastor there and tells him what he feels he's being told to do with his life. And they pray. And as they're praying in this man's little office where where I've been to, he, my dad described it as like the windows were thrown open and that there was like wind swirling around him in the room and that he felt the Holy Spirit in the room that day. And the reason I share that story and that I emphasize it is because if you had ever met my dad, he was like the least supernatural Christian you would have ever met. He, this is a man who who later earned a doctorate, who spoke Greek. He, he was an intellectual and he was he was not a snake handler. He did not speak in tongues. He was not someone given to phony supernaturalism. But for him for him to say that that happened to him, there are two choices. You can think that it's BS and and that he made it up, or you can believe him. And I, and, and I choose to believe him because how else would you explain someone so dramatically altering the trajectory of their life and of their family's life? And, and that's sort of what I was born into. So how did your mom deal with all of this? It's a great question. Uh, she was not a Christian and she was not raised in a Christian home either. And she, at first, was really uh, quite mystified and unhappy about the whole thing. And my dad uh, had sort of resolved to not proselytize her, to sort of let her, you know, find Jesus on her own, or maybe not. And actually, what happened was a short time before my dad prayed that prayer uh, about entering the ministry, he came home from his banking job one day, and my mom told him, that uh, somebody had knocked on the door that day. It was a group of Christians from a local church, not the one that he'd gone to, and asked her if they could come in and just have coffee and talk with her about Jesus. And she was so annoyed by the whole thing that she said yes, because she wanted to give these people a piece of her mind. And, um, and as it happens, they came in, talked with her. And my mom, I, I should know, is probably the smartest one in the whole family. She's, uh, she's a brilliant person in her own right. And so she spent hours with these people interrogating them about Jesus and actually came to the conclusion that maybe this did make sense after all. So the long story short is that mom became a Christian and and was still mortified by the idea of my dad giving up his career and going to seminary, but she started to pray and felt moved similarly by the Lord that this was the right thing to do. So suddenly this 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 couple of um you know young uh, yuppie socialites who had the world at their feet and lots of money in their bank account and a different party to go to every weekend, suddenly they are moving around the country, living on food stamps, preaching in little churches. And I mean, you want to talk about a leap of faith. Uh, my mother's decision to go along with this uh, was always equally fascinating to me. 
And that, you know, they, they in many ways model, uh, modeled for me and for my brothers a humility and a level of self-sacrifice that I think can only be explained by a sincerely and deeply held religious conviction. Is there anything that you understand about your father's personality or earlier events in his life or upbringing that further explains how he could have undergone such a dramatic transformation as an adult? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, he came from a really broken family. And that's not something I can relate to because my parents were extraordinary and they were they were loving and giving and generous and uh, and as I said a moment ago, just a, a model for us. Uh, but I think in my dad's case, uh, you know, his father was an alcoholic who was running around with every woman in town and his mother attempted suicide on several occasions and actually went to the abortion clinic when she was pregnant with him and uh, and 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 walked out at the last minute, which is something that he always puzzled over and ultimately attributed to to holy intercession. And so I think that for someone who has such rupture in their personal life, who has struggled with uh, parental relationships, who has struggled with uh, a lack of family love and, and family connectivity, I do think for that person, it is much easier to find a home in the church and more specifically, I would say, uh, more attractive to pursue a relationship with God and with Christ uh, because of the paternal nature of that relationship, this idea of being born again and entering God's family as a as a co-heir, you know, to use New Testament language, as a co-heir to the throne that we are promised as being children of God. I, I do think that that holds an appeal to someone from a background like his, even more so than than someone from just an an ordinary background like mine. The way that he was searching for something is unique and, and probably more uh, of a of a natural fit in finding God than for someone you know who grew up with great comfort and didn't necessarily feel like something was missing. Did he ever express, or did you feel that he felt either regret or shame about his prior wealthy life before he was born again? It's a great question. And actually, the answer is yes. And one of the manifestations of that was, you know, by the time I was about five years old, we had moved to Michigan, where I grew up. And my dad put down roots at this church that was pretty small, in a pretty middle-class, modest community. What happened, though, is really interesting. The, the, the town where I was raised, Brighton, Michigan, which is an exurb of Detroit, uh, it sits at the intersection of two freeways, and the town became like like there was a like almost a gold rush. Like suddenly it became this incredibly popular bedroom community for people who commuted to jobs in Detroit and Lansing and Ann Arbor. It sort of sits in the middle of all of those big cities. And so when we moved there as kids, like there was nothing there. I mean, there was like a McDonald's and, you know, that was and like a Kmart. And over the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, it really became a boom town with uh, with a mall and with all kinds of restaurants and, and cool coffee shops. And, and it, it became a very wealthy community. I mention all that because 
what as the church grew, the character of the church transformed. It became a very wealthy, a, a very affluent congregation. And one of the challenges that, as my dad saw it, was to consistently and unapologetically confront his flock over this question of of wealth and of material comfort and of our attachments to the things that give us uh, that that give us comfort in this life and how Jesus's teachings, if we are to take them seriously, are a stark warning against material possessions, against extravagant wealth. In fact, Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the, the eye of a needle than for a rich man to find his way to heaven. And there may be some hyperbole in that illustration. And of course, uh, theologians will dispute exactly what Christ meant by that. But we see the teaching time and time and time again. In fact, uh, if I may uh, go on for just another moment to share this, it's it's a an illustration my dad used often, and and I have picked up on it and used it myself because I think it's really profound. At one point in the Gospels, Jesus describes the kingdom of God as a treasure that's buried in a field, and. He says that a man one day found that treasure, sort of stumbled onto that treasure, and what the man did was he put it back in the ground, covered it up, and then he went off and he sold all of his possessions. He sold everything that he had, and he took the proceeds from those sales, and he came back and he purchased the field. And the the, the idea, the upshot of that parable is that the field and the treasure buried in it is the only thing we need that that all of our other identities all of our other possessions all of our attachments in this life are ultimately meaningless if we don't have that treasure if we don't have that kingdom of god and so that is one of many warnings against wealth and i do think that as my dad would share that from the pulpit there was a great deal of regret and even shame in that he had lived this extravagant lifestyle that was ultimately so empty. And, and as he would say it, uh, you know, you could have this great wealth, but ultimately be very poor. I have so many questions about your father and his journey. So I won't spend the entire episode on it, but just a little bit more, because I'm just so curious. Did he maintain any of his friendships from his prior life or associations or um, hobbies or likes that that a person of his means might have had? For example, did he play golf? Did he continue to play golf? Or was it a complete break from the prior life? It was a 99% break from the prior life. The only luxury, I would say, that he carried on later in life was a love of cars. So it's funny, like when my dad died, uh, my brothers and I were trying to work out his finances, and he had this this old used. It was like a ten year old used Mustang, and we assumed a little Mustang convertible that he loved to cruise around town in, and we assumed that it was paid off because the guy's seventy one years old, right? And his kids are all off and grown. No, it wasn't. It was like there was a there was a note on it, and, and he was like paying it <laughs> off monthly because he didn't have money to have that car, but he just loved cars. He he grew up you know around fancy cars, and so. That was kind of a funny thing that my brothers and I all sort of laughed about. Like, here's this here's this pastor who's living very modestly, and people probably see him driving around in this, you know, Mustang convertible, thinking, "Hey, like, what's what's up with that?" And, and of course, he's got like a monthly payment on it because he couldn't afford it. So, you know, it's funny. Actually, this is a very personal thing, but I don't mind sharing it. Um, my dad 
when I say that he came from a broken family, it was actually a very violent family. Uh, he was a his father was a Sicilian immigrant who wound up opening a restaurant in New Jersey that became a hangout for ballplayers and businessmen and a lot of mafiosos. And his own family was connected. Uh, he had uncles who were at the university, as they say, which meant the state penitentiary. And uh, and his his family had quite a streak of uh, alcoholism and violence. And so, in fact, when my dad had this conversion experience and when he went to seminary and then started his ministry career, he told his father and he told his brothers and he told, you know, other family members that that he couldn't be involved with their lifestyle anymore and that he would try to keep a line of communication open to them so that he could talk to them about Jesus and but they basically rejected him and they they told him that he was a kook and a clown and they didn't really want anything to do with him and pre when my dad died uh I met several of his brothers for for the first time uh they 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 came to the funeral and uh he has he has three brothers and one sister. Now his sister, my aunt Betty Lynn, actually she became a believer later in life, uh, and we had a quite a close relationship with her over the years. But his brothers, we never saw, we never spoke to them, we never heard from them. They were just they were ghosts in our lives. And what was really interesting, and and again I don't mind sharing this, and in fact they gave me permission his his brothers, my uncles, to share this when they came to the church for the funeral. And they sat in the pews and they heard my brothers and I give our eulogies and other people at the church sort of testifying to the impact that my dad had had on their lives. My uncles sat there having lived um, decidedly um, unchristlike lives uh, with a lot of you know bad behavior and nefarious activity and whatnot. And they sat there in the pews weeping and I sensed, and I later confirmed this just having very candid conversations with them after the funeral, I sensed a certain shame on their part because all these years they had treated him as the outcast, as the as the unwanted one. And I think in that moment, they perhaps were reflecting on an opportunity missed to see what he saw and to have a piece that he had. So you mentioned the funeral, and I was going to ask you about that because you write about your eulogy, both movingly and also analytically, because you had just written a book and you had made some comments about various people, including somebody who was quite well-respected and in some cases even revered in your father's church, um, Rush Limbaugh. And you got some advice about staying away from politics in eulogizing and and commemorating your father. You did not take that advice. Explain to folks, tell folks, what what you said and why you said it and what the reaction was yeah so you know i um i had just published my first book which was about trump's takeover of the republican party and it was making a lot of news because i had a lot of you know interesting details and and uh of course i was also in the crosshairs of right wing media because the book was very critical of trump and so you know, Rush Limbaugh's talking about me and Breitbart and, you know, other sources are coming after me. And so my dad dies less than two weeks after the book comes out. I travel back to Michigan and I go to the church a couple days later for the viewing and for the visitation. And uh, I'm still in a state of shock, of course, at this point, because 
my dad just died. And, uh, and I had just seen him a couple of weeks earlier. He and my mom had actually driven out to Washington for the book party, which was kind of a hoot because my dad was not exactly the, the Washington book party kind. And it was a great time together. And, um, that wound up being the last time I saw him. So here I am a couple of weeks later, sort of, you know, just feeling like I'm in a bad dream. Uh, and as I'm standing in the sanctuary of the church for the visitation, I've got all these people coming up to me, getting in my face, uh, confronting me about politics, confronting me about what Rush Limbaugh said on his show about me and what, you know, what my book said about Trump and, you know, asking whether I'm still a Christian and, and how I can be saying these things about Trump. And, right. um, and, and as you, and as you write, more emphasis on criticizing your statements than offering condolences as your father lay in a box. That's yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, dad's in a casket. That's how you, you know. put it. That's how you put it, actually. Yeah, dad's in a box. I mean, it's, it's, I, you know, and you almost, I mean, you wonder in this moment, of course, like, is this actually happening? Is this real? Are, you know, in pre, let me be clear, there were lots of people there that day who were crying with me and who were mourning with me and who, you know, who were doing all the the things that you would expect in that moment. So it wasn't a majority. It wasn't even a, a large minority, but it was, you know, enough of these people who independent of one another felt that it was appropriate in that setting with my dad, you know, laid out 50 feet away or whatever to come up and, and want to have it out and litigate their political differences with me. And um, so it really, you know, it pissed me off, obviously. It, it, it put me in a pretty bad state of mind. And so that night, I told my wife that I was revising my my eulogy that I was going to give the next day to uh, to respond to this. And she was like, no, like, don't don't do that. It's a it's a bad idea. And I should just note that my wife is an Indian immigrant. She was raised Hindu and, and came to Christ later in life herself, uh, in, in large part because of my father. They had an amazing relationship. He really loved her as a daughter. And so she was very hurt and very wounded uh, and shocked by all of this as well. But she was just cautioning me, like, don't, don't, don't take the bait. Don't give these people what they want. But I guess my Sicilian blood got the better of me. And so the next day in my eulogy, I, I, I let it rip a little bit and just said, what are we doing here? Like Rush Limbaugh at, at my dad's visitation, you really want to talk politics, right? You know, argue politics. Like what, what I said, basically, listen, you know, Christians are called to be discipled, not by Rush Limbaugh, not by talk radio, but by scripture and by your pastor and kind of challenged people in his congregation. And that didn't go over terribly well. Do you regret that? <sighs> does your Sicilian side regret that? <laughs> My Sicilian side does not regret it. Um, I, you know. Well, look, I mean, let me put it this way. Is some, I think you've, you've intimated this. That some part of that experience of talking about politics and the proper role of politics in the church and in the evangelical Christian church was a bit of a spur for you to write this book. So in that respect, A, is that true? And B, maybe you feel the opposite of regret. Yeah, look, it is true. And in many ways, that was the catalyst, that, that, that entire episode. Because after the eulogy, we went to the cemetery and we buried my father and then came home to uh, my parents' house. And right when I sat down in the living room at my parents' house, still processing all these events, uh, one of these nice church ladies who was preparing a meal, she came over and handed me an envelope with my name on it and said, hey, somebody left this for you at the church. And I'm thinking that it's just like going to be a condolence card from someone, right? 
And I open it up, and instead, it's a full-page screed, handwritten, uh, from a longtime elder at the church, a friend of our family, somebody who'd known me since I was a little kid, telling me that I'm a part of the deep state, that I'm undermining God's ordained leader of this country, Donald Trump, that I should be ashamed of myself. And, you know, all of these traumas taken together, I think, were, you know, they, they, they were the catalyst for me to, to write the book. So, so I suppose I don't regret it in that sense, but uh, I do, <laughs> you know, I write about in chapter one, how the guy who took over for my dad, Chris Winans, the pastor of the church now, who's an amazing godly man who I respect a great deal, you know, he, he had to deal with a terrible situation. And I, and I think that my eulogy contributed to that situation. So I, I do regret it just in that sense that it, that it made, that it made for an even deeper fracture there at my home church. I have to do some real-time fact-checking, Tim. Are you in fact a member of the deep state? Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that I am a member of the well, deep state. Well, you do use the Oxford comma, so that's a I point do against use the That's a point the against first, you. The first rule of the deep state is that you do not talk about the deep state. <laughs> you don't talk about the Oxford comma. <laughs> you just talk about the Oxford comma. I'll be right back with Tim Alberta after this. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. ConstantContact.com. 
can we go back to a couple of basics and then I, then I want to explore some of the themes and observations you make in the book more broadly beyond your your father and your family. What is the definition of, or at least what is, your, or perhaps better question is, what is your definition of an evangelical Christian or evangelical Christianity? Boy, it's a great question. People well, throw that phrase around all the time in, in newspapers and on television. And I don't know that everyone works from a common understanding of the term. No, they don't. And you're right to ask the question. You know, I, I explain very early in the book that this is part of the problem is that um, evangelical was once pretty clearly understood to be a spiritual term. Uh, it, it is. It has its roots in the Greek. And the, the idea, evangelos, the idea was that this is uh, taken, derived from the word for gospel or for good news. And so, you know, evangelical was is someone who believes that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that they have a charge to go and share that gospel, to, to, to preach that good news to the world, to evangelize, right? That's the verb. So, that was the kind of traditionally understood um, theological doctrinal definition. But of course, the moral majority era, the 1970s onward, what we saw was the weaponizing of evangelicalism and the weaponizing of the Christian Protestant church more, more broadly in ways that changed, sociologically changed the definition and the, and the interpretation and the perception of what it meant to be an evangelical. So, you know, whereas 50 years ago, there was a pretty, a pretty decent common understanding, pretty shared understanding of, of what the term meant. Today, it has basically devolved into a, well, okay, you're a, you're a conservative white Republican, right? It's, it's, it's been hollowed out of its, of its religious substance and, and is basically a tribal marker of partisan political identification. Right. How did that happen? Well, I write at great length early in the book, in chapter three, about Jerry Falwell Sr. and Liberty University and the moral majority, because I think that that is the best vehicle that we have to, to help understand this transformation over a period of 50 or 60 years. Um, the most concise way of telling the story, Preet, I love this because I think you can see the light bulb go off in people's eyes when, when you tell the story, is that in 1976, Jerry Falwell Sr., uh, he had not yet formed the moral majority, but he had this megachurch in Lynchburg, Virginia, that he was using to telecast sermons to millions of households across the country and was raising tons of money and building an empire in the process. And then he had this small Baptist college called Lynchburg Baptist College, which in 1976, he rebrands to Liberty University and changes the colors to red, white, and blue and really sort of embraces this, this the, what we would have called uh, or what we call now the sort of Christian nationalism thing was really that the seeds were being planted at that time at Liberty University. And he's getting ready, of course, in a couple of years to launch the moral majority. And, and, and those three cogs form this evangelical machine that winds up mobilizing many millions uh, of conservative Christians and just, you know, conservative non-Christians uh, actually too around the country to vote around sort of moral issues, social values, things of that nature. What's so interesting is that in 1976, Jimmy Carter, of all people, a Sunday school teacher, a self-described 
evangelical member of the Southern Baptist Convention. Jimmy Carter is the Democratic nominee for president, and he gives an interview, if you recall, to Playboy magazine. In oh, which, I, rem I remember this. I remember this. And, and Carter, Carter admits in this interview to having struggled with lust in his heart, right? And Jerry Falwell Sr., like, like any good demagogue, he needed a straw man. He, he needed a, 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 a foil. And Jimmy Carter's interview with Playboy presented the perfect opportunity. So Falwell Sr., he seizes on that interview with Playboy and holds it up as basically, a, you know, a symbol of America's moral decay, that here is this man who is seeking the highest office in the land who would have the temerity to speak to Playboy magazine, and he would stoop so low as to engage with pornography in, in this way, right? Fast forward 50 years to the summer of 2016, and Donald Trump is attempting to seal the deal with evangelical voters, and he has this big meeting in New York at the Marriott Marquis with hundreds of evangelical leaders, and who gets on stage to vouch for him? Jerry Falwell Jr., and he gives this impassioned defense of Donald Trump's character and morality. And he even compares him to King David and talks about how God uses flawed vessels all the time in the Bible. And this is no different. The two of them go back to Trump Tower after that event for a big celebration. And they pose for a picture with their thumbs up. And behind them on the wall is a framed cover of Playboy magazine with Donald Trump on it 50 years later. And if that if that story arc over the course of 50 years doesn't pretty much perfectly encapsulate the hypocrisy and the moral relativism and ultimately the decline of the evangelical movement, then I don't know what does. Did you think about naming that chapter um, Playboy and Pool Boy? Ooh. No, I didn't, <laughs> but I'm jealous that you just came you up with that so quickly. You should have consulted me. You should have consulted me, Tim. Had I, had I but known. So, so with that backdrop, I have a number of questions that a lot of people have raised and you attempt to answer about the infatuation on the part of evangelical Christians with Donald Trump, who you describe in, um, in very colorful terms as being the opposite of a beacon of religiosity, and you just described him that way as well. What is it? And, and one answer you've given, I'm going to jump ahead. One answer you've given that I hadn't really thought of it this way, and I find it very interesting. And you say, in some sense, it takes someone like Donald Trump, who's not Christian, to be the fighter for this group of folks. Quote, and because he's not a Christian, he's not beholden to Christian values, and therefore it makes him almost this mercenary who's willing to fight on behalf of this beleaguered population who feels under siege, and they have turned to someone like Donald Trump to do the dirty work for them, end quote. I have a million questions just from that language. What does it mean to be a mercenary? What do you mean by this idea? And what's the dirty work? Okay, so indulge me for a moment, because I don't want anyone's eyes to gloss over, but but I think history here is super important. And I don't mean American history. I mean like world history. So if you go back to, you know, first century uh, Roman times, uh, the, the birth of the church, right? Jesus is is crucified. He's executed by the state. And then he is seen by scores of people resurrected three days later. The tomb is empty. 
And suddenly you have this movement, this this nascent movement of Jews who for centuries have been practicing a very strict set of uh, rules and rituals. You know, they worship on Saturdays, they don't eat pork, they don't engage with certain ethnic enemies. Suddenly, overnight, they are changed. They worship on Sundays, they eat anything, they engage. All, all these people who were their ethnic enemies, they call brothers and they worship together and they eat together. So something dramatic has changed. And in that first century Roman context, pre. What you see is relentless persecution of these people, relentless persecution of the early church. And how does the church respond to it? The apostle Paul, the disciple Peter, in their writings, how do they respond to it? They respond by praying for the people who are persecuting them. They respond by forgiving them all the way to their deaths. Uh, they're being fed to lions. They're being slaughtered. They're being rounded up and treated horribly and, and killed for their faith. And they're res they respond by singing hymns and by praying and by talking about Jesus's lessons of turning the other cheek and, and loving our enemy all the way until our death. The reason that that's so important to recognize is that that was the Christian approach to the hostile culture around them during the first century, second century, third century. But then in the fourth century, something changes. You have Constantine, and ever since the Constantinian age, where he basically, he purports to become a follower of Jesus, and he wields Christianity as a weapon to advance his political and military and national causes. Ever since the Constantinian age, for the last 1700 or so years, this has been the temptation of Christians. Whenever they are uh, facing uh, times of insecurity, of anxiety, whenever they are afraid and they feel threatened— there is this natural inclination, this natural temptation to turn to the power of the state, to turn to political rulers, military leaders, to turn to strong men who can protect them. So this is nothing new. And I think what we're seeing now in the American context, in this modern age, is that same thing on steroids. You have American Christians who have been coddled, who have been complacent, who have been treated to the absolute best of circumstances throughout this nation's history, particularly white Protestant Christians, right? These are people who have had every advantage, every comfort. They have never felt threatened culturally uh, or socially in any way. And at the first sign of the country changing around them, they are panicked, right? They are afraid. They are deeply insecure about this country's changing face, both demographically, culturally, politically. This is becoming a country that is strange to them and unfamiliar to them and, and, and hostile to them in a certain way. And they are reacting to it by doing what people have done for centuries, which is seeking out a strong man who might protect them from their enemies. And the problem, of course, is that what it does is it not only fractures the tenets of a multicultural, pluralistic society like ours, a liberal democracy like the United States, but it also diminishes the strength of the Christian witness because it basically it renders your theology to be so small and so fragile that we need big bad Donald Trump to come along and fight for us because clearly God is biting his fingernails over the next presidential election. And, and I think it's, it's that vacuum of fear and insecurity that Trump has tapped into and exploited, and it explains the enduring strength of his hold on these people. Is there something that Trump could do or a position he could take or not take 
that would cause him to lose support among evangelical Christians. So for example, if he said tomorrow, you know, Roe was decided the way it was decided and Dobbs overturned it, but now I'm actually pro-choice, just to use a dramatic example, is his hold on that community of voters locked for good? Preet, I think about this all the time. Um, I don't want to be flippant with my response because I do think that at the margins, sure, he could lose people. In fact, I think that some of his comments around abortion after the 2022 midterms where he threw pro-lifers under the bus and then more recently when he criticized uh, the, the heartbeat bill in Florida uh, that DeSantis signed into law, effectively banning abortion at six weeks, you know, I think marginally he lost some supporters there. Yeah, marginally, like, you know, any candidate can lose yes. some voters at the margins for anything, including the weather or a slight rise in unemployment, you know, any any number of factors. But Exactly, exactly. The answer to my question, I guess you're saying is, you know, by and large, he has an absolute lock no matter what. And no matter I find what. That, I, mean, I find that interesting. <laughs> it's, well, and, and, you know, listen, when he said that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it, we all laughed and rolled our eyes. But that has actually proven true. And with, with specific to this community, and here's the thing that I would emphasize, Preet, like when you're dealing with people whose lives revolve around notions of supernatural transformation, then they can, I think, conjure up a justification for that which otherwise has no justification. And and so if Donald Trump came out tomorrow and said that he was pro-choice, or if Donald or if Donald Trump came out tomorrow and admitted in, in a news conference that he'd been sleeping with some other porn star throughout his presidency, I have to think that for a large share of these people, not all of them, but for a large share of these people, they would either say, yeah, but look at what he's accomplishing for us. Clearly, God's hand is still on him and he's a sinner just like us. So who are we to judge? Or they would say, no, this is this is not true. He's saying this because it's three-dimensional chess and he's actually he's actually saying this to, to play his opponents and, and he's actually thinking of several moves ahead. In other words, I think that they would find a way to get around it because they have found a way to get around so much else. I mean, even just at a, at a baseline level, this idea of talking about your opponents, your, your, your enemies as vermin, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that life, that humanity is made in the image of God, that it is precious and has inherent immeasurable value, then how can you condone someone speaking this way about migrants, about immigrants from other countries poisoning the blood of our society, calling people vermin. I mean, this is like, this is this is pretty basic stuff. And yet what we see is time and time again, a willingness to justify it. You taxonomize in some sense, the spectrum of Trump supporters. And I've often thought about this and, and it, was, it was interesting to see you put this in writing in this particular way. You write, uh, you know, about people who to one degree or another are either full-throated supporters and apologists for Trump or others who are more pragmatic in their support for Trump, given his policies. And, and you write, quote, at one end were the Christians who maintained their dignity while voting for Trump, people who were clear-eyed in understanding that backing a candidate pragmatically and prudentially need not lead to unconditionally promoting, empowering, and apologizing for that candidate, right? And, and I kind of get that. I'm not that voter, I don't agree with them, but if you're a person in a particular business and the only thing you care about is your tax rate, and you say, I'm voting for Trump because of what he's going to do on taxes, and, and you don't try to justify all this other stuff that you're talking about, and 
you know, the incitement to violence and anything else, I guess you can maintain some plausibility or dignity. But then you write at the opposite end, where the Christians who had jettisoned their credibility, people who embraced the charge of being reactionary hypocrites, still fuming about Bill Clinton's character as they jumped at the chance to go slumming with a playboy turned president. What explains the difference between those two categories of Trump supporters? I think the simple answer is just probably um, integrity and and intellectual honesty, consistency, right? I mean, if you know, I I grew up in a household where you know Bill Clinton's uh, impeachment and Bill Clinton's uh, sex scandal with Monica Lewinsky was like a, a formative moment for me because my family wasn't really political. Well, we didn't talk about politics at all, actually. The only time politics really ever came up around the dinner table with my, me and my brothers, my dad would talk about it as a test of character, that politics really w was all about ethics and integrity and character. And it was a proving ground for those things, right? So that was the water that I swam in. But then to see not just my dad, but so many others come to a place where they felt compelled to vote for Donald Trump in 2016 and then even and then even more so felt compelled to uh, excuse or uh, apologize for and ultimately enable certain behaviors and certain rhetoric when he became president was incredibly disillusioning for me because uh, you want to think that there's a standard and you want to think that that standard, is not situational, that it's not relative to who's in office and you know what letter comes after their name on the ballot, that, that we apply this standard because it's born out of principles and not just political principles, but, but spiritual principles and, and, and beliefs that are, that are unshakable. And I think that was the dis disappointing and, and uh, you know, really discouraging thing for me was even as I could understand the pragmatic prudential decision to vote for someone, I, and I really respected those who were able to then sort of detach themselves from Trump after voting for him and say, no, I can't, I can't abide this. I can't excuse this. I can't go along with this. There were many, many others who I think to varying degrees felt almost guilty about their vote for Trump and self-conscious about their vote for Trump and therefore felt the need to justify it uh, continually. And and that's a weird sort of psychological space to be in, but that's what I saw with a lot of people I know. Do you think that that inconsistency will be seen again? You know, once a group of folks chastised and criticized and ridiculed Clinton for something in his personal life of a sexual nature, then defended it when it came to Donald Trump, will they go back to attacking it again if it happens with respect to a Democrat in the future? Oh boy, maybe. Although I think it's, I mean, I mean, you're, I mean, you would say, I mean, reasonable people would say, okay, now <laughs> th there's the precedent of Trump, right, and all the things that he said. If Joe Biden tomorrow wore a tan suit, I think they would attack him again, like they did Barack Obama. <laughs> you would have to be sorely lacking in the self awareness department to reintroduce any of these like moral litmus tests, this idea that character is a prerequisite for political leadership. I mean, yeah, you would be uh, making kind of a fool of yourself to do that in the future, but I don't necessarily put it past certain folks who, you know, let's be real. I think I used this phrase somewhere in the book that there is an evangelical industrial complex and it exists not for the nurturing of 
spiritual journeys, not for the betterment of society by way of introducing Jesus to an unbelieving world. It exists to win elections. It exists to win the culture wars. It exists to dominate the world around us and to impose a value set on society and to do it by any means necessary. And so, you know, if if it requires zigging and then zagging and then zigging again on questions of morality or ethics or precedence or whatever, then that's what will happen because it's a zero-sum game. You're either on the side of good or on the side of evil. And when you think about the world in those sort of you know binary terms, then your capacity for justifying the behavior and the rhetoric of someone like Donald Trump became, becomes bottomless. You describe in the book how you had a meeting with your father's successor as pastor, and you asked him a question that you said you had been spending a lot of time thinking about. And the question was, what's wrong with American evangelicals? And the new pastor said, uh, in answer to your question, America. Too many of them worship America. What did you take him to mean by that? And what's wrong with loving America? Yeah. I mean, look, I love America. I'm glad I was born here. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I came here. Yeah. I, you know, there, there's a lot of wonderful things about this country. What he's getting at is a warning that we see repeated throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is a consistent admonishment throughout Scripture that we are tempted to be like the nations. We are tempted to idolize the nations. We are tempted to find our identity in the tribes of this world, uh, in the cultures, the traditions, the idols of this world. And if you think about America as a source of idolatry, then you can obviously get to a place where you're looking out at your flock examining the ways in which they are behaving, the ways in which they are engaging with the world around them. And you conclude that much of it is driven by an over-realized sense of American identity. In other words, if you follow Jesus and if you believe in his teachings that, that you are called to be a citizen in a kingdom that is not of this world, that ultimately it's a choice that you can choose to pursue your earthly identity and the glory and the fame and the wealth and the prestige wrapped up in that, or that you can humble yourself and that you can strip away everything and pursue the kingdom of God, but that you can't do both, right? That, that it really is an either or proposition. If you believe that, and that is just standard reformed, you know, theology that I'm, that I'm sharing here. If you believe that, then you can't escape the conclusion that there is an idolatry problem in the American church and that it is an idolatry problem driven by a, a sense that our American identity and our Christian identity are actually one and the same, that this is a, this is a nation that is divinely blessed. It is a nation that is in covenant with God, that, that the American story is the story of God providing this nation with, with so much and that we, in turn, need to fight for God by fighting for this nation. Because if America falls, then God is defeated. I mean, that is, that is the way that so many American evangelicals think about the intersection of faith and culture, faith and country, God and politics. And 
The reason it's so dangerous, uh, I would just add this, Preet, because I think it's it's so important that I, I use this as the epigraph of the book. You know, we are introduced in the Gospels to Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And Satan takes Jesus up to a high mountain, and in a moment of time, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says to him, I will give you the power over all of these kingdoms and the glory that comes with it if you will just bow a knee to me. And Jesus rebukes him and says, no, it is written, you shall worship the Lord thy God and him only should you worship. And and in that, in that story, I think it's important to recognize that uh, traditionally in Christian doctrine, we are taught that our struggle uh, constantly is against the temptation to do exactly what Satan tempted Jesus to do in the wilderness, which was to try to dominate this world, was to try to pursue the power and the glory and the kingdoms of this world. And in fact, Jesus could have been king. They wanted to make him king. Everybody thought that the Messiah was going to slay the Romans and that he was going to build this new establishment here on earth and that he was going to rule with an iron fist. And in fact, this lowly preacher from the ghettos of Nazareth comes along with a completely different program and says, no, this is not what I'm here to do. I turned down the opportunity to do that in the wilderness because that's not the kingdom we are called to. So the struggle here for the American evangelical, unlike the Chinese evangelical, unlike the uh, Sudanese evangelical, because these are people who don't have our comforts, they don't have our uh, our dominant status in society, they, they haven't become accustomed to trafficking in the power and the glory the way that we have. There's not this there's, there's not this crisis in the evangelical church overseas, but it is a crisis here because we are so uniquely prone to giving into that temptation that Jesus rejected 2,000 years ago. I want to end by going back to the story of your father, because it, it, as I mentioned already, it is endlessly fascinating to me. I'm trying to figure out what to learn from that experience. So I take it that your father was happy and happier in the second part of his life. Am I right? Oh, yes. Uh, much happier. And and he had more meaning in his life and, from what I can tell, offered lots and lots of other people meaning in their lives, too. So it was, for him and for his community that he came back to, a good thing. And so I'm trying to understand what lesson can be learned. There are a lot of people, maybe many people who are listening to me and you in this podcast, who have a lot of things. They have material things. They are not fulfilled. They are not satisfied. They don't have the meaning that they want. And I'm much more familiar with stories, and, and these are stories that can maybe inspire people to take action on their own. When people are not happy and don't feel they're on the right path through a process, I guess, of seeking and discovery and trial and error, maybe they can find spirituality or religion or some other calling. The problem for me in understanding how we can learn from your dad's experiences, it was an instant epiphany. Am I getting that wrong? Is there something... That, that people can take from the example of your father if they're in the same predicament that he was in? Well, Preet, it's interesting. Um, I'm sitting in my home office here, and I'm looking at this painting, and it was my dad's favorite painting, and I stole uh, a copy of it from my home office after he died. And it's called The Light of the World. And uh, it's sort of a famous old painting, at least in, in Christian 
settings, Christian circles. And it depicts Jesus standing outside of a door on sort of a, a dark, haunting night. And he's wearing this majestic cape, but it's over top of these dirty, grubby, disgusting clothes. And he's wearing a handsome, beautiful crown, but it's sitting on top of the coronet of thorns pushing down into his skin uh, that he wore on the cross. And he's knocking on a door, but the door has no handle. The door has to be opened from the inside. And Jesus talks in the New Testament about how he stands at the door and knocks and, and waits for it to be opened, that he does not intrude on our lives, that he does not barge into our lives, that you must seek in order to find. And I think what's what I would share is that when you grow up as a pastor's kid, especially the kid of a pastor of a big church who had an incredible story, who is just immeasurably gifted from the pulpit and a brilliant person, you sort of ride the coattails of, of, of that faith for a long time, and I did as a kid. Um, and it really wasn't until college when I started to think that I knew everything and that maybe I knew better that I began to search and seek for myself and really began to interrogate my beliefs and interrogate Jesus. And what I found was that there is nothing, you know, I'm a storyteller, right? I'm a journalist. I, I love stories. There is no story that has ever been more uh, intellectually satisfying or academically convincing to me than the story of God becoming so distraught over the broken state of humanity that he needed to become flesh and that in order to uh, have a sacrifice worthy of atoning for the brokenness of humanity, that it had to be God himself being sacrificed. And so God, in fact, took on flesh, became both fully man and fully God, the God-man, as he is referred to by the ancient church fathers, that Jesus, and only Jesus, being fully God and fully man, could serve as in the ancient Eastern cultures, they needed the perfect lamb. They needed the spotless lamb in order to sacrifice and, and, and use that blood to atone. And it could only be Jesus as the spotless lamb uh, of God, taking our sin and our brokenness on himself to the cross in order that we might be redeemed and we might be reconciled in relationship with our creator. Now, not everyone listening will believe that. In fact, I'm sure some people listening might scoff at that, and, and that's okay. But what I have to put on the heart of anyone listening is that if you earnestly and sincerely and humbly seek, and if you allow that door to be opened, I do believe to my core that your life will be changed because of it. I do believe that everything you thought you knew might in fact change and that you will recognize that there is in fact a purpose for your life that goes so much deeper than than money or or fame or success or material possessions and if a pastor's kid can preach just a little bit that would be my sermon to to those listening well i'm not going to be able to end on a better note than that so on that note, Tim Alberta, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, the book, terrific, important read, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Tim, thanks so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Tim Alberta. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producers are David Kurlander and Noah Azulay. The technical director is David Tatashore. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, Jake Kaplan, and Claudia Hernandez. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.